Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to The Intuitive Customer uh, with me, Colin Shaw, the founder of Beyond Philosophy, and my erstwhile colleague, Ryan Hamilton. Sorry, I'm uh, Ryan Hamilton. I'm a professor of marketing at Emory University. Good. And um, this is the episode. I can't remember what number we're up to now, which is um, which is good. Um, so thanks very much for everybody's feedback so far. It's um, uh, been really good. Uh, we're on part two, if my memory serves part me correctly. Part three. Part, three. part yeah. two, it was diminishing sensitivity, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. It shows that I'm I'm paying attention. <laughs> so all most of these conversations are meant to, to be kind of freestanding and you can listen to them in whatever order. Uh, and if you haven't heard the previous two, you'll still you'll be fine. You can cut uh you'll be able to keep up. Um but we did set aside these three to talk about um one of the biggest ideas in behavioral economics and in the psychology of decision making. Uh, if you if you're familiar with this space at all, if you've read any books on this, you may have heard of prospect theory. This was a, a an idea that won the uh, one of the authors a Nobel Prize in economics. It was a very very big deal. Uh, prospect theory is a big kind of complicated bit of theory around decision making. So we we've carved out three um, opportunities to, to converse about the three big ideas within prospect theory. So one is uh, reference points. One is diminishing sensitivity, which Colin just made reference to. We've done separate conversations around those two topics, and then today we're going to talk about loss aversion. Good? Sounds good to me, Mike. Let's dive right in. So uh, loss aversion is a a pretty simple idea. It's the idea that uh, humans are wired such that uh, we feel losses more acutely than we do gains of of an equal magnitude. So if I give you $5, Colin, that feels good. If I were to take $5 away from you, that feels a lot worse than getting $5 felt good. So sometimes this is termed as losses loom larger than gains. They just they seem to take up more space psychologically. They seem to motivate us more. We seem to feel those more acutely. So that's loss aversion. Right. So when you think about that, then I guess a loss would be when you are expecting to have something, and yeah. so it's not just about money. It's about I was expecting to get this, but I didn't get it. And therefore, that results in a customer complaint. Is that right? Yeah. So losses are relative to the reference point. So um, you can go back to that that uh, conversation we had two sessions ago. Um, everything is, is relative to our expectations. So uh, if, if, Colin, if you and I have different expectations going into a restaurant, then we could experience exactly the same level of service. And for me, I'd be pleasantly surprised. And for you, it would be um, a disappointment because we started off with different expectations. The point is my being pleasantly surprised is a good thing. That's fine. But if you're yeah. disappointed, that's really going to be motivational. And so that's right. uh, that's really going to be powerful and it will motivate you to um, uh, complain, for example, or do something else. Yeah, so when you start thinking about putting those together, if I regularly stay at a Melto 6, then that's what I'm expecting. If yep. I regularly stayed 
uh, and somebody else who regularly stayed at a Ritz Carlton. Um, that's, I guess, the reference points and also the diminishing sensitivity bit that we talked about in previous sessions, right. which then culminates in, uh, actually, I'm feeling a loss because I, although I'm staying at a Ritz Carlton, I wasn't getting the level of service that I expected to get last time and, um, and, and therefore that becomes a loss. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And if you, um, if you're a service provider and you exceed people's expectations, that's good. They'll be happy with that. But if you don't meet their expectations, then that's going to be really motivational. So that's, that's going to be really powerful. So it's, it's, uh, it's way worse to fall just a little bit below their expectations than it is to, than it is good to be above their expectations. There's just, there's that, um, offset there. So a couple of things then. It, how I presume, therefore, understanding what would be a loss becomes a key factor. Yeah, because you actually have to understand what the customer's expectations are to be able to, therefore, either meet or plan to exceed that. Right. Uh, that's right. So, um, in, in looking at this from a, a practical uh, standpoint, so what can you do about it? One of the things that I always tell my my MBA students is. If you want to understand how people are going to evaluate anything, including a, a customer experience, you, you need to know what their reference points are. Um, now, you might be able to guess at them, right? If, if you're in a very competitive industry and you know that your customers are uh, comparing your options to others within your category very frequently, then it might be reasonable to assume that their reference points might be some combination of what they're seeing out on the marketplace um, or, or experiences that they've had with the product. But sometimes you can be surprised. Um, you know, so Colin and I, you and I have, have worked with a, a company that, uh, that provides a, a kind of home repair service. Um, and, and you and I had a discussion with this with them around, you know, what are the expectations? What are the reference points that customers are bringing to their service? Right. Yeah. When people come into your home to, to do some kind of work, what's the expectation that you have? Is it from the last time you had a plumbing emergency and a plumber showed up at, at midnight to fix something right away? Uh, is it, are you comparing it to that time that you had an insurance agent come out to give you a quote? Like, what is the reference point that you're bringing with the set of expectations? And it's not always obvious. Um, and so you need to get out there and do the research and, and find out what are customers bringing with them uh, in evaluating your service. We're so pleased that you're listening to this episode of The Intuitive Customer. As a listener, we want to offer you a free download of Colin's ebook. Unlocking the Hidden Customer Experience. Take advantage of this free offer being made available only to listeners of this podcast. Do it now. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast and follow the link for the free book. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. So one of the things that we often talk about with clients is that I think that a lot of organizations do a fair chunk of research on what we would call the rational parts of their experience, i.e. price, how quickly they want delivery, how quickly they would need to answer the phone, that type of thing. But one of the things that we've often talked about is do they understand customers' emotional expectations? So correct me if I'm wrong, but in doing that, there can be just – in fact, let me tell you a story. Sorry, I'll finish that one off. I got so excited by these things. (laughs) Um, yeah, uh, not understanding their emotional capability, uh, their emotional expectations and therefore feeling 
that there's a lot, the loss, if you like, is an emotional loss that they, that they thought. That, does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's clearly a, um, you know, whether, whether it's strictly emotional, whether it's more system one, which we've talked about in a previous session, but there's, there's yeah. definitely this intuitive, uh, deep-seated part to this, right? It's, it's not strictly rational to... So let, let me give you my... Yeah, let me give you my example. Um, we were doing some work with a um, um, building society in England. So it's a bit like, um, uh, I guess, a, a credit union or something right. like that. Yeah, membership where you go and get your mortgage. Uh, anyway, long and short of it was that uh, when we were doing this work, uh, we were doing this research, this sort of emotional research, and we were saying to this client uh, or this customer, we were saying, you know, what do you think about this uh, building society? And they basically said, well, I went in to pay my last ever mortgage payment, and I got really upset. And I well, what, you know, why did you get upset? Well, because I was paying my last ever mortgage payment, and my problem was nothing happened. So their emotional expectation was that when they went in to pass the check over for the last $1,000 to pay the mortgage off, which they've been paying for 25 years, that something would happen, you know, instead of just saying thank Well, yeah, just, uh, but even just a thank you of thanks for being a customer, it must be really good, this is the last ever payment you've made, or somebody presses the button and the bells come on and everybody starts having a party and, but you get the idea, and that for me was, so that is like describing that emotional loss that they thought something should, should happen and, it didn't. Yeah, and, and from the bank's perspective, I mean, it, the, the, this gets back to this idea of reference points. You know, from the bank's perspective, here was a stream of income that's now done, right? So there's nothing to celebrate there, right? It's a, uh, that's just kind of a bummer. From the customer's perspective, they felt like they were, uh, it, it doesn't feel like you're paying off a loan. It feels like you're giving them money, right? It feels like you're paying yeah. in something. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you kind of expect some gratitude for that. Sure. Uh, and so, um, like if, if you're expecting something, some kind of positive response and you get nothing, that, that can, you react to that very badly, um, often in an emotional way. Um, let me give you another example. So, uh, this one comes from, uh, Richard Thaler at the University of Chicago, but he, um, he constructed this hypothetical based on, on, um, a real set of facts. He um he said, you know, imagine you're the only uh, gas station uh, in a, a small town. Yeah. Um, your some about half of you. We'll keep the math simple. About half of your customers use credit cards to pay for their gas, and the credit card company charges you a surcharge, which you want to pass on to your customers. So, do you um, charge whatever three fifteen uh, per gallon? That's what goes up on the big sign out front. And then when people pull in, uh, you've got a little sign on the, on the pump that says, oh, there's a 5% discount, uh, or 15% discount, however the math works out, 5%, I think. Um, 5% discount if you use cash. Okay. Or you could charge $3 per gallon up front, and then when you pull in, it says, oh, there's a 5% surcharge for credit cards. Now, yeah. the price is fluid, right? Mathematically, yeah. it is exactly the same. The, the, you can just change the prices such that everybody pays exactly the same. Um, but emotionally, you know, from a loss aversion yeah. perspective, if you 
charge that surcharge to the credit card customers. They're livid. Um, and in fact, the way Thaler tells the story, so uh, obviously credit cards are now ubiquitous, but when they were a new thing, some gas stations did each of these, right? Some charged a, a surcharge, some gave a cash bonus. Um, and the people who were in the surcharge places were so angry that they called their congressmen. Like people were so mad about this. Um, and so the gas stations all learned and they were like, all right, fine, fine, cash, cash discount. Uh, some places still do this, particularly in the Northeast. Um, and everybody's happy there, right? I mean, cause the credit card companies go in, they're at their reference point. They're paying what they were expecting to pay. The sure. cash people are now in the, in the gain zone. They're, they're bonus, right? This is less. Whereas with exactly the same numbers, you could flip it and have the cash customers be at their reference point, what they're expecting. And now the credit card customers are in the loss domain. Right? So a lot of these effects are very subtle. They're very yeah. easy. They're cheap. Um, a lot of times it's just the way you communicate information. But the effects yeah. can be very, very powerful. The Intuitive Customer is being brought to you by Beyond Philosophy. Your frontline teams should be trained on how they can practically influence customer decision using some of the psychological techniques discussed in these podcasts. To understand Beyond Philosophy's unique approach to the training of frontline teams, just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash employee training. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash employee training. They always say bad news travels faster, don't they? Yeah. Uh, they always say that, you know, if you provide bad service, then you're likely to, you know, you're likely to tell 26 people. If you provide good service, it's only eight. So I guess the point being is that human beings, I won't say tend to be negative, but maybe this is sort of this inbuilt thing of protectionism or something like that. I, I don't know whether I'm hypothesizing in the wrong era. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's been, loss aversion has been explained in various ways. It's, it doesn't have, as far as I know, it doesn't have a, a real good theoretical explanation for it. Some of the no. things that have been proposed, I mean, you can construct an evolutionary psychology story around it. Um, you know, from, from a survival standpoint, losses tend to be much more detrimental than gains tend to be good. So, you know, if you have, if you have a, a bumper crop more than you were expecting, you know, that's, that's great. You know, that's a reason yeah. to celebrate. Uh, if you have a, a, you know, a really lean crop or something that was much less than you were expecting, that could kill your whole tribe, right? So, but explanations like that are not real scientific. They're, you know, they're hypotheses. You, you might be able to gather evidence for them. Um, it's a reasonable potential explanation. Um, but loss aversion, in fact, one of the, the criticisms of loss aversion that come from some areas of psychology is that it's not a great theory. Um, right. But it is a really reliable empirical generalization. This is just, if I had to place a bet on a single outcome based on a psych theory based on behavioral economics, it would be loss aversion. It is right. just remarkably robust. We find it over and over again. Is so, it, I mean, again, just follow this along because I think this is potentially an interesting thought. So if I've, um, if I've, and I was thinking about what you were saying that maybe, you know, I gain something. Uh, so maybe I, I don't know, I start some, I don't know, going back to my hotel, I now get Wi-Fi free, okay, yep. um, thrown in with my package. So the first couple of times I go, oh, I've got Wi-Fi free. Yep. But now after a period of a year, I'm now just, well, of course I'd get Wi-Fi free. Right. Um, you know, why would I not? 
uh, uh, but now they take it away from me, or now they start saying, all right, you've got to charge. So that clearly is a loss. I guess um, my question's around, uh, the interesting bit is around the period of time, isn't it? So when do you start accepting that as part of the norm and part of your rights or whatever? Yeah. Um, It's a good question. And I'm sure that it depends on various things, but uh, the evidence points to remarkably fast. So one of the implications of loss aversion is something called the endowment effect. And the idea is um, that if if you feel like something is yours, if it's part of your endowment, like just yeah. something that, that, that belongs to you, then you tend to value it more than other people do. Why? Right. Because giving it up is a loss, and losses are very painful. So um, this is also a, a Dick Thaler um, experiment, uh, but he... He ran this experiment with a group of students, and there were various versions of it. But uh, in one of the versions, he took a classroom full of students at Cornell University, and he gave half of them a Cornell University mug. Right, so a very nice mug. I think it was like a six-dollar mug, something like that. And then he held a um, he held an open market there in the classroom. So essentially, he had everybody who owned who was just given a mug. You write down on this piece of paper what is the lowest amount of money you would be willing to accept in order to sell that mug to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you didn't get a mug, you write down what's the most you'd be willing to pay in order to get one of those mugs. Now, right. just through random assignment, it should be that you know about half the people who got mugs value them less than about half the people who didn't get mugs, right? Um, right. Just through randomness. We should expect that a lot of these mugs are going to change hands. You got a mug, you didn't really need a mug. I would really love a mug. Um, you know, maybe I can get one on discount. We should be able to make a deal. That's not what happened. Hardly any mugs changed places. Uh, it turns out that once I have this mug, you know, my, my precious here, I, yeah. I value it a lot. And if you, if you want this mug, you're going to really need to pay me for it because I don't want to give it up. Whereas yeah. on the other side, people are, are a little bit more kind of cold and, and calculating about it. You know, how much is this mug really worth to me? So. Yeah. That happened within the span of a few minutes, right? right. So in terms yeah. of uh, how long does it take before loss aversion kicks in, sure. it can be very quick. Yeah, sure. And I guess just thinking about what you were just saying, it's also um, over that sort of – there may be something that you have which is o- you only have through – let me, I'm not articulating this very well, but you only have through perception. In, in yeah. other words, uh, you know, I'm, I've got this as part, I'm just carrying on my hotel theme for the moment. You know, uh, uh, I don't know, the manager's special, um, that he has a, uh, you know, has a free, free drinks every Thursday night, you know, for an hour. I've never actually gone to any of them, yeah. but now they've stopped doing them. So, <laughs> You know, you know, you know. Uh, so Dan Ariely, um, who wrote the book Predictably Irrational, um, which explores a lot of these issues, he ran a, a, an experiment with students at, um, uh, I can't remember if it was UNC, Chapel Hill, or Duke, but one of the, those two schools, uh, the, their school had just gotten into the Final Four um, in basketball, right? So it was a very big deal. And they, they found this endowment effect, this loss aversion, with purely hypotheticals, right? So they said, imagine that you've gotten seats to go to this game. 
how much would you be willing to sell those seats for versus imagine you have the opportunity to buy some seats, how much would you be willing to pay? And it was it was more than ten times price difference. So yeah. something you know like in the hundred and fifty dollar range to buy the tickets and something in the two thousand dollar range to sell them, right? It was something like that. Just like this massive difference um on a purely hypothetical ticket. Right? This, yeah. You didn't even own it. You didn't even have the ticket in front of you. Just thinking about owning it and then thinking about giving it up was enough to totally drive this. There's a, a comedian, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Louis C.K. Um, right. He's a fantastic American comedian. Um, and he, he's got, it's, it's gotten really famous on YouTube. He's got this clip where he's talking with an interviewer about how quickly we become adjusted to things and how angry we get when they're taken away. Um, he was yeah. talking about when uh, airplane Wi-Fi was brand new. And yeah. uh, um, he was on there and he was using it and he was streaming videos. He's like, this is amazing. This is the most advanced thing I've ever seen. This is incredible. Um, and then it, it broke and it went out. And he, he said the guy next to him got all angry. He's like, oh, this is BS. I can't believe this. And he was like, you just found out this existed. You didn't even know this was a thing two minutes ago. And now you're angry because it's gone. Yeah. And that's the human experience. Like, is when, when we expect it to be there, even yes. if we didn't know it existed two minutes ago, yes. it better be there. And if we take it away, you know, if you yes. take away the manager's drink special that you've never used, you're going to get mad about it. Yeah. The Intuitive Customer Podcast is brought to you by Beyond Philosophy. Since 2002, Beyond Philosophy has been helping organizations improve their customer experience through their consulting, training, and research services. Find out more at beyondphilosophy.com. That's beyondphilosophy.com. I, I must admit, I was I, I was only doing it last night. I was watching, streaming a video from Netflix, I think it was, and I was complaining because it it had started to buffer. And yeah. I was thinking, 10 years ago... I know. You were... <laughs> To go out to Blockbusters and <laughs> have to get out my car in the rain and go and get a go and get a, a disc and then bring it back home. And, I, <laughs> and now we I've got like nothing. Yeah. yeah, no, it's true. It's true. We get remarkably accustomed to things. So I I guess uh, and I'm now sort of thinking of practical impl- implications of this. Okay, so one of the ones that comes to my mind recently that well fairly recently a couple of years ago i guess was when bank of america started charging yeah. something like five dollars for their uh, account which yep. then massive issue um and they ended up uh, backing out of that so i guess that sort of loss aversion in in practice as well yep absolutely um i think delta airlines did something similar um uh, several years ago when they reset their um uh, the medallion levels. Yeah. Um, so it was, it, it historically had been very, very easy to get to silver medallion. Um, so, you know, some huge percentage of people that were flying were, were getting status. And they essentially thought that it was diluting the benefits of, of that. And so they, they dialed it back, right? And so you had all these people who were losing their status. Um, and that was hard. A lot of people complained. I think that Delta handled it about as well as could have been handled, though. I mean, they they prepared people for it. They let them know this was coming. And then they they tried to steer it towards this being a motivational force. So, you know, wouldn't you like to get your status back? Well, here's what you, here's what you would need to do in order to do that. 
Um, contrast that with what Bank of America did, where there was kind of no, there was no good news there. There was, there was nothing no. that, that worked out. So I guess just building on that then, in practical terms, if you have to do something like that, and clearly sometimes businesses just through economics have to do something. Then, price raises. Yeah. It, yeah. It's about the way that you lead up to it and the communications that you put in place. And Which change the, people's reference points, right? I mean, it's a way of adjusting the expectation. Yes. But you should also still expect that there's going to be a backlash or, or whatever. It's just a question of how much of a backlash there's going to be uh, and then putting in place things to do it. The thing that drives me around the bend is, um, is when organizations do that, they try to justify it. But it's so bloody obvious that they're just trying to justify it. It's like you're insulting my intelligence by trying to sell to me the benefits of why this is better for me. Um, but, um, yeah, that's maybe a difference reference point as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can, we can look at it from this perspective that those rational explanations for why the, none of that's changing my reference point, right? No. It's still that. It's essentially trying to justify the loss instead of trying to mitigate the loss. Can we, yeah. can we prepare you for it differently? Can we, you know, so yeah, it's, it's not surprising that it doesn't work. And as we spoke about before, obviously different customer segments will have different reference points. Yep. So I guess the reality is that if you're producing this loss, it will, um, it may affect one group of customers a hell of a lot more than it affects another group of customers. So yes. it's a question of working out which is which is which is which and which is going to benefit more, basically. Yeah. Benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for, in terms of practical implications, um, do your research, figure out what those reference points are, and do it by segment. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other thing for me is 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 just understanding and designing, understanding where the loss is going to occur because I don't think that people, organizations, really consider it a loss. They don't, and, and I guess the other part for me is, um, is that it can be, and tell me if I'm wrong again, uh, but it can be like a combination of losses. So... They took that away from me. Oh, okay, I'm not going to worry about that. But they've now taken that, and they've now taken that, and they've now taken that. So now this last one just becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back, and it's actually, you know, these, this whole perception that actually you're now just taking advantage of me um, yeah. in in some way. Yeah, and uh, we, we'll actually talk about that in a subsequent um, conversation, the, the idea that, um, there are ways that you can combine gains and losses that um, increase or decrease the size effect. And, and you're absolutely right. The worst thing at all is a series of small losses. Like they just, they just eat at you. They just accumulate. Um, yeah. So we'll talk in a subsequent uh, conversation about um, some of the, the theories around that, maybe what you can do to manage that better. Yeah. Right. It, it does come right back to loss aversion. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, let's call this um, this uh, to a to a halt. Um, and just a reminder: the book is the Intuitive Customer, uh, available in all good bookstores, as they say. Um, so um, get yourself a copy. And um, if you have any other questions that you want to ask Ryan or I, then please just go to the Beyond Philosophy website: www.beyondphilosophy.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Uh, if you've got any suggestions of um, uh, topics that we could cover, uh, if you've got any questions, then please don't hesitate uh, to ask. We're always interested in engaging with the audience. So, um, yeah. So thank you very much, and we look forward to um, talking to you again um, in two weeks' time. Thank you. Thanks for seeing This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. <laughs>